Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki, and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Welcome, welcome. Okay, today I want to break down the three kinds of the crappiest behavior. Above all, I really want to sink into the notion that all behavior is communication. We have to always keep that in mind. And all behavior is just behavior, right? But of course, in the the common parenting lexicon, there is crappy behavior. There's behavior that we need to sort of deal with because it's right in front of us. I, I've said this throughout this podcast. I say it throughout my work. I don't like the idea of of bad behavior because, again, I just look at it like, how can we translate it? How can we translate the communication our children are giving us? Remember, they're so new, two, three years old, they don't have all the words. And I want to put a notion out there before we even get started on the three different kinds of, quote unquote, crappy behavior, <laughs> is that children are allowed to have bad days. And I think we all forget that, that occasionally you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, nothing is going right. If I could throw a tantrum as an adult, I probably would. And sometimes we see people, grown adults throwing tantrums, right? So I just want to remind you that kids are allowed to have bad days. The three kinds of behavior, the strong behavior, whatever we want to call it, that the three major kinds of behavior we see that need attending to are acting out, limit testing, and tantrums. I find that most parents come to me and they lump all behavior into one grouping, bad, he's being bad. But each type has a subtlety that makes it different to deal with. And if you're dealing with them wrong, if you're, if you are dealing with tantrums as though they're limit testing, right? You're not going to be effective. So this is one of the reasons I really can't answer quick questions about behavior. You know, I'll do a, a, a Facebook live and people will tune in and comment, you know, what can I do about my kid hitting? I can't answer that question. We need to know the source of the behavior. I can't give you a standard script or a standard way of dealing with my kid is hitting without knowing that base. You know, is this acting out? Is it limit testing? Is it a tantrum? So that is why it becomes so important to sort of label the behavior you're seeing because it will be a guidepost for helping you deal with that particular behavior. Now, all three of these, acting out, limit testing, and tantrums, these are very developmentally appropriate, you guys. We can't eradicate it entirely. So I don't know how to stress this. <laughs> Parents come to me and want like angelic behavior. Your child is new new to everything, new to all these emotions, new to all this growth, both physically, mentally, emotionally, you are bound to get some collisions here. So please don't think that any of my work is meant to produce this angelic child. And any quote unquote expert who tells you they can get rid of all the behavior in your little one, they're full of crap really, because it's developmentally appropriate that your kid acts this way. Again, learning. They're just learning at the speed of light. You're not getting out of this parenting gig without experiencing them. The question does become, how can we mitigate it? How can we prevent it? How can we, you know, lessen it and have your kid not be falling out every three seconds, right? 
my book, my work, we center around this whole brain, whole body approach that does keep some of this behavior at bay. But again, being so developmentally appropriate, please don't think you'll escape these. So let's kind of go through them one by one and describe them and describe some things you can do about it. So acting out is the literal acting out of feelings. Our little ones do not have the words yet to articulate all their big feelings, so they act them out. Limit testing is the literal testing of limits. You say no, they look you in the eye as they are attempting to do the very thing you just told them not to. Limit testing. It also comes in less mischievous forms, right? Sometimes limit testing is totally pressing your buttons and you can feel it because you're like, oh, holy shit, this kid, right? You you know your limit is being tested, but it also comes in these less mischievous forms. It's a what happens if I, right? This comes up in potty training a lot and and I have to separate it out for parents. Like what is what is it limit testing and when is it just the child doesn't know, right? Because a lot of times a kid will start this like, hey, I wonder what happens if I pee on the couch. It's not really an accident. It's just, huh, I wonder what mom and dad will do. Um, it, it comes up in potty training when a kid knows how to use the toilet and suddenly starts peeing on mom's bed, right? It's a what happens if, what are they going to do if I do this? Can I get away with it? it will usually tweak you out. It is that pushing against the fence that we talked about in past episodes in in boundaries, right? And the important thing to know is that boundary testing, a lot of times parents think it's like a, a something that ends, something that needs to be curbed. It needs to be worked with, right? If you think about boundary testing, limit testing in just Figuring out what the rules are, I find it gets very helpful to reframe the behavior. So our kids, I don't know how many ways to say this. So I'll just keep repeating it until you get sick of me hearing it. Our kids are just always, always learning. They're learning the rules. They're learning your personal rules. They're learning the household rules, the family rules, the rules of society. And so that's what that limit testing is. What happens if I do this? What are my parents going to do? The tricky thing with boundaries is kids will keep moving them. It never ends. We, we're always, we're always gonna, throughout their childhood, be dealing with boundary issues. And it's gonna look different. Of course, a teenager's boundary issues look a lot different than a three-year-old's boundary issues, right? So if, if you think of it in terms of like, what are my parents going to do? We have to sort of lay down the law. We have to let them know what we're going to do. And we need to be firm and strict about that. Because if you keep moving the boundary, your child is going to keep pushing harder. And so what happens, this is where you get that really crazy behavior. You know, if you've ever watched Dr. Phil and seen those like teen boot camps, it almost always comes down to a boundary issue. And the parents keep moving the boundary. If you have a spirited child or a, um, you know, an emotionally difficult child that just keeps wanting to push the boundaries, you may be tempted to move the boundary because you say, well, this kid needs, he, he needs more. He needs more exploration. He needs more space. He needs more emotional space. He needs more physical space. Not necessarily true. Remember, we talked about boundaries as sort of an emotional swaddling, right? And the more spirited your kid is, the more they actually need that. They need you to be firm. 
And lastly, we have tantrums. Now, tantrums are an explosion, right? A collision, too many feelings, not enough physical skills, too much internal or external stimuli gone bad. I want to spend a fair amount of time on tantrums since they're largely the bane of your existence right now. For right now, I want to be very, very clear. A large amount of tantrums are caused by your child being hungry, tired, and or overstimulated. This is all on you. It is your job to set your child up to be the very best she can be. Okay, so let's be clear. If you find yourself saying every tantrum, oh my God, she's just so tired. Oh my God, she's just so hungry. Oh my God, I shouldn't have gone to Chuck E. Cheese. That is your fault. And I very rarely (laughs) say, you know, I don't want to put guilt. I don't like to guilt parents. I don't like to be like, oh, this is all your fault. You are in control of this. You are not in control of your child's developing brain. You are not in control of all the myriad of things that can trigger a tantrum. So the very least you can do is make sure your child is well-fed, is well-slept, and is not overstimulated. Now, I know, of course, sleep, it's very hard in our busy lives, but you you have to devote sort of the, the first five years to sleep. You have to, to sleep eating schedules, these these very rigid schedules that you see sometimes usually work out the best because the child needs that. They need that regularity. They need that sleep. In this world, it is very, very, very hard for our kids not to be overstimulated. We have screen time, which is just generally speaking, overstimulating. We have all kinds of marketing to kids that we didn't have when you and I were kids. These, these, um, jumpy places, they have, you know, trampoline parks, they have gyms for kids, all kinds of things that, yes, they're great, but for our little, little guys, they can be overstimulating. You have every right to say no to crazy birthday parties. If it's going to whack your kid out and result in tantrums and bad behavior, say no. I made a commitment. I wasn't going to no Chuck E. Cheese. I was not doing it. I just couldn't imagine. It seemed like Vegas for my three-year-old. And Pascal was just very sensitive, as I think all, you know, toddlers and preschoolers are very, very sensitive to that external stimuli. So be aware of that. There's so many things. I was just so funny. I had a friend's birthday party yesterday and her little ones too. And she's like, oh, I can't really decide what I'm going to do this summer. You know, what do you think? Like the Bronx Zoo or should I take her here? And I was like, dude, she's two. Like do the kiddie pool in the front yard. Number one, she's not going to remember this. Number two, she's going to fall out. She's two. She cannot handle the Bronx Zoo. What are you going to take a bus to New York City? That in itself with a two-year-old sounds hellacious from Rhode Island, right? That's like a five-hour, <laughs> no, maybe four-hour drive uh, or even the train. That's going to tire her out. Now you're going to take her to this big thing. She's not going to even remember it. So chill out. I was like, do that. You have limited time for the beauty of the kiddie pool or the sprinkler in the front yard, right? Go with that. So she, she was like, Oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. We feel like we need to provide these over the top experiences. Think of your first memory. Some people claim they have memory, you know, up from when they were one, when they were born, one or two. You know, largely though, most of us have a memory of like four or five years old are our earliest memories. 
and people will say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, she remembers that. No, she doesn't. She remembers you talking about it. So if you take your kid to Disney when they're two, you're going to take pictures and you're going to talk about it, right? And that's largely what your child's going to remember. So save all these like fabulous making memory things. Save those for when your kid's a little older and can handle, can handle the travel, can handle the waiting in line, the overstimulation, the crappy food, the lights, these kinds of things, okay? So I went off on a huge tangent there because it it really makes me mad. It upsets me when kids get blamed for crappy behavior and we put them in those positions. So that's first and foremost, slow it down, slow down the zero to five years, make it simple, think old school, think basic, 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 and that will go a long, long way. But moving on, because no matter what, your child can be excellently fed, slept, and completely not overstimulated, and tantrums are still going to happen, right? So acting out looks like frustrated, tired, emotionally overwhelmed, right? These emotions are going to manifest in shitty behavior. So these are the kind of emotions you want to address head on. So let's build emotional literacy, right? in our child's acting out. You want to start building your child's emotional vocabulary, yeah? So when you think your child's acting out, and again, that acting out is different from tantrums because it's going to look like frustrated. It's going to look emotionally overwhelmed. You know, if you, any behavior you see when you bring a new baby home and your first one has any sort of behavior, that is all acting out. That is, I don't know how to deal with the feelings of not being the only child in the house, of you giving all your attention to something else, something else that's not even that interesting, that only sits there and cries and poops, right? (laughs) So that's where you're going to see acting out. So there, you know, like I said, you want to translate, like if you could put adult words onto the behavior you're seeing, what would that look like? And again, acting out is a great place to build your child's emotional vocabulary. And I think we tend to be so simplistic with our kids. Like, oh, you're so sad. There's like 80 different flavors of sad. So let's be specific because the more emotional vocabulary we can give our kids, the better. You know, you seem very frustrated. You seem overwhelmed, right? So give your child, and if you need to, you can look up these words. Look up in a thesaurus. Sad. Look up other words for sad or frustrated so you can start to share these with your child. Again, it will take some like translating uh, of sorts, but if we give our child like a buffet of emotional language, then they can start to pick from that and, and start to recognize what they're feeling. And I'll tell you what, this translates just like all my work. This is not just about mitigating crappy behavior right now. It's about building Right. The, the whole point of zero to five is because the next step is six to six to 12. Right. We've got that. So we want to we want to think ahead, too. And I can tell you just my son is on the cusp of teenagehood and having that emotional vocabulary is so key. Pascal and I seem to have more dialogue than most parents of a teenage boy who, you know, teenage boys tend to like <laughs> shut down because he's got this great emotional vocabulary. So it will serve you later on. Yeah. You can look up emotion charts. So you can just Google it and pull up an emotion chart. These are great. They're usually, they almost look like um, emojis. 
they have very different feelings for uh, faces to match with the feelings. And these are wonderful. A lot of times I remember when guilt, guilt and shame is on there. And that's really powerful because if your child did something wrong and they feel guilty, holy shit, you're going to see the worst behavior ever. Because you know what? Shame feels nasty. Shame Oh, God, I see it in adults, too. When somebody feels shame, they hate it so much, they rebound. Your heart your heart cannot handle sitting in shame. I don't know why it's like one of the worst things psychologically for us. And you will see people put up these walls, these incredible fast walls to avoid feeling that shame. And so do our little ones. So if they feel shame and they feel guilt, whoa, dude, you're going to see really, really bad behavior. So it's really good to get to get those words out there and those emotion charts. Transitional objects really help with acting out. So transitional objects are those objects, you know, the, the bunny, the blanket, anything your child takes from home to another place. Maybe it's in the car. Maybe it's to preschool. Maybe it's to grandma's. That is a transitional object. A lot of times we recommend it when a child starts preschool, we want to give them a transitional object to bring with them. It can be a very small object they can keep in their pocket. It can be a small piece of jewelry, a little bracelet or a necklace or something like that. And the idea is you fill it with your mom or dad love, and then the child wears it throughout the day. And it's a talisman for them to be reminded of your love. And then what happens is it ends up being a super great gauge when your child gets home they may say like, oh, my mama love bracelet is out. It's all out of love. And so you know your child's had a really bad day. So it gives them some words and a framework for expressing that so that they just don't get home and, and act out a shitty day. We write, we get, we're giving them a tool to say, oh, this is out of love. I need more love. I need a hug. I need this. So transitional objects can be amazing. And really, you need to know your child's exhaustion point. I work with parents on the regular, and oftentimes it's just you just stayed too long, you know, and your kid fell out. You just have to, at this age, things have to be shorter. The visits have to be shorter. You have to start recognizing your child's signs. I, you know, I'm out in the world again. Like I went to a two-year-old's birthday party. Holy shit, like right an hour into the party, the kids started to peak, right? Running around. They had freaking acting ridiculous, like just being really, really stupid the way toddlers can, you know, like silly, silly, stupid. And I was like, oh boy, here we go. And they hadn't even had the cake yet. And then like a half hour later, all of them are rubbing their eyes. And I thought, you know, I love my friend to death, but I thought, oh my God, a three, four hour birthday party is too much for these kids. Like get them in, have the cake and get them out. Right. So knowing your child's exhaustion points and being firm with that, being firm with your friends, like, dude, I got to go. My kid and my kid's going to fall out if I stay. Limit testing. Let's move on to limit testing. Limit testing. These are your pure straight up. No. I see far too many parents treating limit testing like acting out, and they're not the same. Acting out is like a translation. It's helping your child figure out the words, the feelings, the expression. Limit testing can have some compassion, but not as much as acting out. Acting out is is full of compassion, right? Limit testing is really about you being strict, and it's your firm no with no expectation of agreement. This is a sticky point for a lot of parents, putting up a boundary and expecting your little one to be cool with it. 
you guys, your little one's not going to be cool with it. They are not going to just respect your boundaries. They are going to kick against it. Your job is to be a pole in cement in the ground that they can totally kick off of. Every time I talk about limit testing with parents, um, I bring up the image that comes up in my head is tetherball. I don't know if you ever played that at camp or anything. It's it's that pole in the ground and the ball is attached to a string and you kind of play volleyball. The ball goes around and the idea is to like wind it around the pole. That's how your kids should be like that ball and you should be the pole, right? So they're just whacking around and around and around. Your job is to just stay firm. Yeah. You cannot expect your child to be on board. You cannot negotiate a boundary with your child. I mean, maybe once in a huge, great while, but not usually in these zero to five years, because once they start negotiating and learn that they can negotiate, you're fucked, man, because they're going to want to negotiate everything. So my advice, don't negotiate. You know, again, when you lay this groundwork now, the negotiating might happen later. Pascal's constantly negotiating his boundaries, my boundaries, but he's got the words and he's got reasoning. And he's like, well, here's why I think I should be able to get another half hour of, you know, video game time. I, you know, I did all the, I took out the trash and I did this and I folded your laundry. And don't you think, you know, that I could get rewarded? And I'm like, yeah, totally. Of course you can get another hour of video gaming. So he's allowed to negotiate because he's got the skills. A two, three, four, five-year-old does not have the skills and they're just going to use that against you. So don't do it. (laughs) Just don't move that line. You can absolutely acknowledge the action with compassion, but the end goal is no. Limit testing may include an external consequence, right? This is when you say, you know, if you do this again, if you If you hit your little brother again, I'm going to have to put your train up on the fridge. It may involve a toy timeout. It may involve some sort of external consequence. Now, tantrums. Like I said, I wanted to, I want to jump to tantrums because I think that's where most parents are uh, sort of drowning. Yeah. Ah, the tantrum. So between the ages of 18 and 30 months, they are very, very, very appropriate. Development is not even, right? And their brains are exploding with discovery, with all kinds of emotions, with a body that doesn't have the physical development to match. Again, if it's hungry, tired, or overstimulated, you control all of those. On on a quick note, I want to delve into hungry because hungry Hell hath no fury like a woman or a toddler who's hangry, right? Now, with there's a thing going around now that we should graze. And you see kids with goldfish. We have those snack cups that the kid can reach in, but they don't spill. We're walking around with snacks. I super encourage you to go back to a three meal a day model. It's it's something we don't do in America and it it serves well. I know that with picky eating, and I'm going to talk about some picky eating in a later episode, right? It can eliminate picky eating. It can eliminate blood sugar issues. If you train your body to expect food constantly, if the food isn't available, your blood sugar will start to drip. It's that's um, to dip. That's just how it works. So if you can encourage tolerance with the three meals a day, that will be so beneficial for you. Your child will have more patience and more availability to for their body to wait till you get home so that you don't have that fallout like, oh, my God, he's so hungry. Sleep trumps everything at this age. Naps are a priority. So is early bedtime. So really, I know it's not fun, but the zero to five years are laying the groundwork, right? So get sleep to be a priority. If it is not a priority, if you are struggling with it, get 
sleep help. I recommend Alana McGinn. She's with Goodnight Sleep Site. She has all kinds of consultants. Please, 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 please get help because sleep, if your child is not slept well, it is underslept, it, your life is going to be hell. Yeah. Again, say no to anything loud and kooky. There's time later in childhood for your child to be overstimulated. <laughs> All right. So some tantrums, though, you can do nothing about, especially when you're at home, when it's like all emotional. So the number one thing is once a tantrum starts, you have to ride the train. There is nothing you can do. People say, you know, what can I do to stop it? You can't. The It's, it's a runaway train. Your child is emotionally locked in like a pit bull with a stick, right? Locked in and you just have to ride it out. So my suggestions are do not look your child in the eye. Do not try to communicate with any sense of logic. You want to only whisper. You want to sit on the floor a distance away and just let it run its course. If you have to say something, you can say the words, I am right here when you need me. I am right here when you need me. Again, whisper. Yeah. So I tell you this because I used to work in social work. You guys, I worked with kids who at five years old could keep three grown men at bay. So I've worked with wildly emotional and violent kids. So their tantrums were super epic. If you raise your voice to meet the child's voice, the child is going to escalate as well. So that's why we whisper. Whisper is non-threatening. It's vocal non-violence. You get down on the floor so you are eyesight or below eyesight for your child. When they're in this, uh, the emotional throes of a tantrum, having somebody tower above you is super scary and can make them react more. So that's why we want to get down on the floor and whisper. Do not look in the eye. I don't know why. This is just a primal animalistic thing. You look them in the eye and they're going to rage. So try just try not to look them in the eye. Let them have privacy in this emotional fit. Yeah. And again, you just got to let it run its course. It's super scary. You want to, of course, make sure your child's safe. You want to make sure that they're not hitting you if you need to get out of the room. If you have, if your child's tantrums have escalated to where you, the parent, actually feel unsafe or you fear for the safety of your child, that is an indicator that it's time to get help. So one of the things about tantrums that I find today is we've sort of lost our communities and our villages and parents just don't know what's normal and what's not normal. Violent tantrums that where you fear for your safety or your child's safety on the regular, those need help. Okay, so that's not developmentally appropriate. Tantrums really should be like one or two times a week. If you're getting three tantrums a day, again, seek help because something's going on that is not developmentally appropriate. Tantrums should happen because there's an explosion. But if your child's internal and external stimuli are exploding regularly, we want to try to fix that. Now, I very quickly want to go through tantrums outside the home because this is where tantrums outside the home turn into limit testing. We can unconsciously absolutely teach the wrong behavior. Usually a tantrum outside the home, again, let's let's say it's not because they're hungry, tired, or overstimulated. It's usually because they're falling out because they want something. It is vital that you do not give in. If you give in, you simply teach them a new skill. I cannot say this enough. You are teaching them a new skill. I'm going to use a very basic example that I think we're all familiar with, but this can be extrapolated across the board. 
You have a full week's worth of groceries. You are in the checkout line and your child wants candy. That is right. I level with them. Thank you, marketers, right? Your child wants candy. You say no because you don't let your child have a bag of M&Ms, right? (laughs) And your child starts to fall out for the candy. You have to get through this freaking line, right? You've got a week's worth of groceries. You cannot just take your child and walk out. So what are you going to do? Your child starts to fall out and you say, okay. So now your child, all they have learned is if she says no at first and I cry in a public place, then she's going to give it to me. Take the emotion out of it, you guys. So I find parents get very like resistant to this idea. No, I, I didn't teach them this. I had to, I had to teach them that or something like that, right? No, 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 no. Take all the emotion out of it. Take all the words out of it. All your child learned was, oh, if I do this, I get the thing I want. And that's why it's so important. We've all heard this. Don't give in. Don't give in. Don't give in. And we give in, right? Because the reality is our life is sitting in front of us and it's so hard not to give in. And, and the week's worth of groceries, I know if your child starts to fall out that you know you should leave, but you're not going to because you need those freaking groceries, right? Now, of course, I suggest leaving. And if you can start to feel that their child's emotions ramp up, leave early. There's a couple of reasons. If you have it in you to leave that week's worth of groceries, you will nip this in the bud so freaking fast. If your child learns that the minute they start to act a fool, that they are going to be taken out of the situation, you're seriously, you guys, that's the best thing you can do. So I super encourage you to do that if you can. The other thing is that we know this. We know somebody's going to pull out their fucking phone and start videotaping you. We know that that you're going to see all this crappy judgment and we are vulnerable to that. In a perfect world, I'd love to say to you, oh, fuck them. Fuck everybody. You know, kids have tantrums. That would be ideal. But the reality is if you've got a lot of people staring you down, it's going to affect you and you're going to cave. You're going to give your kid anything to shut them up, right? So we have to acknowledge that that's a very real thing and you don't want that, right? So it's better to just like up and leave really fast if you can (laughs) and get your kid out of there before it ramps up, before you're dragging a flailing toddler, right? Once you get good at identifying like your kid ramping up, you can respond to it better emotionally. So that's the other thing is like, you know, you may think it's just whining. And then before you know it, it goes from, you know, zero to 60 and you're kind of crazy. So I have this trick called the I will cave, will I cave technique. And I wanted to share it with you because it's perfect for this moment, these moments that you have when you're out of the house, right? So again, we don't want to cave because the child will then learn something. You may not want to leave, right? Because you have a week's worth of groceries or whatever. So you have to get really good at this thing that I call, will I cave? Are you going to give that kid the M&Ms to shut the child up? Are you going to do that? Are you, if he starts ramping it up and you don't have the availability to leave the grocery store without those groceries, you're not going to just take your child and leave. Are you going to give him the M&Ms? If you are, and this, you guys, this is like a a three second calculation that you get good at if you practice it. If you are, give it 
first. Give it immediately when the child asks. You know why? This keeps you in a good position of parental power. It makes you seem generous. You didn't cave. You gave it to the child when they asked. If it's going to be a yes, give the yes right away. Don't give a yes after six no's because the next time your child is going to do six no's and take it to seven, eight, nine no's and keep ramping up. Again, this takes practice, but you get very, very good at it. And you say, oh my God, yeah, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I really need these groceries. I need to get the fuck out of this store. I'm going to give it to him now. That's it, right? Then you got a kid happily munching on candy. (laughs) You get out of the grocery store, no problem. The most important thing is that if it's a yes, it's a yes right away, not a yes after you've said no. So it's a very simple technique, but it will save you a ton of drama. Yeah. So once you kind of figure out what you're dealing with, are you dealing with acting out? Are you dealing with limit testing? Are you dealing with a tantrum outside of the house? You get good at identifying what kind of crap you're dealing with. So then you can be faster about responding to it. And of course, dude, you're the one in charge. If you lose your shit, the whole fucking boat sinks. Yeah, it is imperative that you do not lose your shit. (laughs) If you need a time out or to walk away for a minute to keep it together, go for it. You have to do that, okay? I suggest mommy timeouts all the time. Once you lose your shit, it's hard to back that. It's hard to back it up, right? And then you end up apologizing. You've lost your shit. You've scared your child. Now we're not even talking about the kid's crappy behavior. Now we're stuck in our, our parental crappy behavior. So again, if you need that time out, take a second. For me personally, oh, I have scathing words. Man, the words that come out of my mouth when I'm angry. So I've learned over the years, I need to shut up. I need to like immediately shut up till I process some of my emotions because I'll just say mean things and I will be hurtful. Now, when I shut up, I don't only shut up. I also suck the oxygen out of like a 20 mile radius. So it looks like this very oh, you know I'm mad. <laughs> and I think it can look passive aggressive. And the people in my life have learned, like, please just give me, you know, 20 minutes, give me an hour to process this feeling and I will be able to have kind words and sort it out. So know yourself in these situations. A lot of times we don't consider our personal selves when we're parenting, right? And we contribute to so much of it. So it all takes a little um, practice learning which behavior you're dealing with. And remember, like all parenting is a practice. It's like yoga. No one jumps into a class doing handstands. It's an ongoing practice. So the more you practice learning your kid's crappy behavior, learning how to deal with it, learning how to translate, learning the will I cave technique, right? The more you practice, the better you get at it. So please don't think that you should be really good at this. You know, your kid's new on the planet. I keep saying that three years is like not a lot of time to be in a body learning all the rules. You've been a parent for that long. So you're still new to the learning curve is steep and I know you're fucking good at it. I really do. But give yourself some slack and make sure that you understand that this is a practice too. All right, I'm going to sign off for today. You can always go to jamieglowacki.com for the super cool latest updates, including the launch of my new book, Yummy New Book Presale Treats, when we release new episodes, and how to work with me directly. And of course, if you need any potty training help, there's a handy link there that will take you to all my potty training resources, including all my courses. That's the Oh Crap Potty Training online course, 
my pooping solutions course, and my night training supplement. And if you need additional help, how to book with a certified OCRAP consultant. That's all at jamieglowacki.com. Have a beautiful day and rock on.